four years ago, as we were kicking off the fall season here with Trinity, we celebrated the 60th anniversary as a church. And uh, that day, one of the things that happened is we uh, launched a vision statement. It was the fruit of about two years of work, a lot of conversations, a lot of prayer, a lot of discerning, um, hearing from both members of this congregation and members of the community that would help guide us into uh, what the future held and what God was calling us to do. And then 2020 hit and everything changed, right? Uh, But here we are in 2023 with a vision statement that still serves us well and calls us to the kind of living that invites us to put convictions into action. And so this morning, as we start and as we continue this series about brave faith, I want to make sure that you all hear and even participate in this statement and are, and are letting it become not just words, but, but something that seeps down into who you are as we seek to live this statement out together. So I'm going to do it in a call and response fashion with you, and I'll give you a, a phrase at a time and invite you to just say it back to me. So the vision statement goes like this, to be a courageous witness for Christ. By welcoming all people, growing loving relationships, nurturing deeper faithfulness, and doing all the good we can in our community and beyond. So this fall, we are connecting to that vision statement with a message series about brave faith. And it parallels a book that was recently written by our Florida United Methodist Bishop, Tom Berlin, entitled Courage, Jesus and the Call to Brave Faith. So last week we started with uh, Gary Mason's message for us. And each week's theme for our worship services goes along with one of the chapters in his book. Uh, Last week was The Clarity of Courage. And we heard Gary remind us of the clear call that Abraham heard and the way in which uh, Abraham responded and not knowing where it was that he was going, went anyway in order to respond and to, and to be faithful and obedient. Um, and so this week, we look at the second week, which is the conviction of courage. And just real quickly, looking forward to the end of this series, on our last Sunday, October 15th, Bishop Berlin will be with us and will be preaching that last Sunday in the series, and we look forward to welcoming, here, welcoming him. But today, the conviction of courage. Francis Kelly, who was an early to mid-20th century bishop in the Catholic Church, says, convictions are the mainsprings of action the driving powers of life. Thomas Carlyle, 19th century historian and philosopher, says that conviction is worthless unless it is converted into conduct. Conviction is worthless unless it is converted into conduct. So as we enter our scripture story for today, we encounter a man named Jesus who holds deep convictions about God's work in the world and who is unafraid to put those convictions into action. 
So I want to invite you to listen as I read the story in its entirety for us first this morning, and then we're going to walk back through the story to pay attention to what is happening as we listen to it. This comes to us from the 13th chapter of Luke, beginning in the 10th verse. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and couldn't stand up straight. When he saw her, Jesus called her to him and said, Woman, you are set free from your sickness. He placed his hands on her and she straightened up at once and praised God. The synagogue leader incensed that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded, There are six days during which work is permitted. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath day. The Lord replied, Hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from its stall and lead it out to get a drink? Then isn't it necessary that this woman, a daughter of Abraham, bound by Satan for 18 long years, be set free from her bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said these things, all his opponents were put to shame. But all those in the crowd rejoiced at all the extraordinary things he was doing. This is the word of God for the people of God. And God's people say, thanks be to God. <clears throat> Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit and breathe life into the words of this servant. That they might carry a word from you into our hearts and lives this morning. Amen. As we begin listening to this story this morning, the first thing that the narrator does for us is to set the context, to let us know where we are, what's happening. And so the very first sentence informs us that we're talking about Jesus and he is in the synagogue, a likely place for him to show up. He is a person who grew up in the Jewish tradition. And not only does he go to the synagogue to participate, but as someone who has taken on the role of a rabbi and has followers uh, who, who travel through life with him, he is teaching on this particular day in the synagogue. And, and then one little detail that we hear at the end of the first verse is that this happens to be on the Sabbath. A, a detail that may seem inconsequential in that verse alone, but as we continue through the story, becomes quite significant to what transpires. No sooner has the context been set, than a woman enters the story. Have you ever noticed how often in his ministry, Jesus moves the stories and the experiences of women to the center? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, think about it. He's traveling one day, trying to hurry to get to his friends, Martha and Mary, who are worried about their brother Lazarus. And a woman comes up behind him and touches the hem of his garment. And he stops everything he's doing in order to pay attention to her in that moment and to bring healing to her life. 
There's the woman who anoints his feet with oil as a preparation for his death and burial. And as the crowd kind of murmurs about this strange behavior, Jesus blesses her and calls out her act as a gift. The Samaritan woman that Jesus chooses to sit down and have a conversation with at the well. The woman whose sin the crowd wants to point out and they're so riled up about that they want to kill her for it while they ignore the sin in their own lives. The friendship that he has with Mary and Martha. And then, of course, there is the story at the end of the gospel when Jesus intentionally shows up in the garden so that his friend Mary can hear the good news and see him herself. Time and time again, Jesus does this work. And so, not surprisingly, biblical historians and scholars note that while this is one story of a particular woman at a particular time in Jesus' ministry, it is also symbolic of an overarching ministry that he has with women, and one that has implications for us as followers even today. So this woman, the scripture tells us, has been bent over for 18 years. Disabled by a spirit is the way the narrative goes. Now that language of a spirit may sound a little odd to our 21st century ears. We don't uh, tend to think in terms of spirits causing action or making things happen or possible. And yet, one of the things I'm, I'm thankful for is that in our current context, more and more people are becoming aware and cognizant of the holistic and integrated nature of our lives that we are physical and emotional and psychological and spiritual beings, and they are all tied together and interwoven with each other. And so we might look on this story today as an example of someone experiencing a physical manifestation of a spiritual condition. I'm thinking that each of you probably has known someone. Maybe you can think of someone right now who is suffering from the trauma or the hardship or the oppression or the invisibility or the bullying that they have encountered that has left them so wounded and weary that they are living life bent over under the crushing weight of it all. In the next verse, after being told about this woman who has shown up, the next thing we hear is, when he saw her, Jesus sees her. Who knows how many times this woman has shown up in the synagogue before this day and has gone unnoticed, unacknowledged, unserved, unrecognized, uncared for, but Jesus sees her. And then he calls her to him and says to her, you are set free. Jesus' response is immediate. There is no hesitation. Now make no mistake, Jesus knows exactly what day it is. He's quite aware that he is there on the Sabbath. 
And, and, and as a good Jewish man in the synagogue, he knows what the Sabbath laws say in his tradition. But there is no question that he is going to act on this woman's behalf on this occasion. Compassion oozes out of him when he sees her. And so the story goes on to tell us that he lays hands on her and she straightens up at once. Think about that. 18 years bent over and suddenly she finds herself looking eye to eye with the Son of God. Imagine that. And now, as she does, just as Jesus' action on her behalf was immediate, so her response is immediate. And the narrator tells us that she praises God. She gives thanks where thanks is due. And friends, this is the moment where everyone should join in the celebration, right? Cue the band, call the caterer, cancel all the other plans. It's time for a big old community-wide party because this woman who's a part of our community has just been healed, has just been set free from suffering for so long. Hallelujah! Can somebody get cool in the gang here to help us celebrate? Except that not everyone is celebrating. The story continues. The synagogue leader was incensed, by which the narrator is not suggesting that he was exuding a pleasant fragrance, if you will. Rather, he was indignant, outraged, so mad at what he has just seen. His vision has been clouded in such a way that he's totally missed the compassion that has been extended to a woman in need of healing because he's so focused on the violation that Jesus has just perpetrated on the laws that exist. The law says, the synagogue leader retorts, He would rather see the law enforced and observed, even if it means that the woman has to go on suffering. We're closed for healing today, but there's six other days you can come back if you'd like to join us again. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Sometimes... The law is just wrong. About two years ago, Trinity launched the Gainesville chapter of Circles, a ministry and a program that is meant to empower people so that they might move out of poverty and into self-fulfillment of their goals and dreams and possibilities for their lives. It is hard work that these people go through in order to be leaders of their circles and have allies come alongside them to do that work. And what a great and fantastic work it is. 
And one of the beautiful things about circles is that not only is empowerment happening for these people, many of them women, but along the way, others of us get to learn and benefit from their stories and their experiences as well. We become enlightened to things that many of us, having not experienced poverty the way, the way they have, have never known in our own lives before. So one of the things that I'm uh, appreciative of learning these last couple of years is about the cliff effect, an unanticipated consequence of people working hard to rise out of poverty. The cliff effect happens when wages from either a new employment opportunity or from an increase in wages in an existing employment because they're doing a good job does not make up for a family's loss of benefits from their state and or federal government that are cut when their income has gone up. Putting the family in a worse financial situation than they were before. So here's where the income was. The person works hard, gets a promotion or a new job or a raise, their income goes here. But when the income goes here, the law says that this benefit over here now goes away completely. And suddenly, the net income result is that they now have less to take care of themselves and their families than they did before they got the raise. Does that make sense to anybody? Talk about disincentivizing people. And to those folks who talk about people who choose to stay on welfare rather than going out and working, I would invite them to help change the system so that we incentivize people. Sometimes, friends, the law is just wrong. And we, like Jesus, can come alongside folks and be a part of making things right. Of helping people who have been bent over under the weight of their suffering be able to stand up straight with dignity. As the story continues, we realize that sometimes it's not just the law itself that's wrong, but it's the way the law gets applied. Inconsistently, arbitrarily, to the advantage of some while to the disadvantage of others. And Jesus calls out this double standard in the passage today. Okay, synagogue leader, let me make sure I've got this right. So it's okay on the Sabbath for you to untie your donkey who is thirsty and take him to get a drink of water. It's okay for you to do that work, but it's not okay for us to heal this woman who's been suffering for 18 years. Did, did I get that right? That's the juxtaposition that is happening. And the word in the Greek New Testament for untie the donkey and loose or free the woman is the same word. We miss that in English because it gets translated into two different words, but it's the same word to make the comparison or the contrast even more pointed. 
Then Jesus goes on to remind them that this woman is one of them. She's a part of their community, their people. She is, as he says, a daughter of Abraham. A title that bestows dignity and belonging and sacred worth. And so Jesus says, isn't it necessary? Not a good idea. Not a possibility. Not a maybe. Not an opinion. Isn't it necessary that we wait not another minute to free this woman from her suffering, but deliver her now? As it turns out, freeing her on this day is the perfect way to honor God on the Sabbath. We get to the end of the scene and the synagogue leader and others who have been caught in the absurdity of the comparison, those who have nodded in approval with him as he has retorted back to Jesus, are left feeling ashamed, we are told. Now, there's a cautionary word for us here. It's not explicit in the scriptures today, but it's there for us. The reason they are caught in their ashamedness is a a consequence of their own actions, not Jesus' words. And so we should be careful not to turn our victories for justice and mercy into an opportunity to gloat before our adversaries. Because Jesus doesn't want anyone living life bent over, even the people we disagree with. The crowd, in the end, rejoices because that's exactly what we should do anytime somebody has received the gift of healing and wholeness. Tom Berlin says that courage arises from the God-inspired convictions we hold about how the world should work and what we should do to care for and support others. And over and over again, we see Jesus model this kind of courage for us. His convictions lead him to act in unison with his words so that he can bring healing to those in need. And I have to believe that this work is grounded in the call to action that he hears in the scriptures that he grew up with and in his deep relationship with God. Those calls that come from the Torah and from the prophets and perhaps are most clearly and succinctly articulated in Micah 6 verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. So what about you? Where is God calling you to take courage so that you might take a conviction held about an injustice, about something that is unmerciful, and turn it into a conviction 
lived. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we all pay attention. As we close today, I want to offer a prayer that our church council leader, Whit Curry, shared this past Monday night when we gathered for our executive team meeting. It fits just right with this theme for this morning. So would you pray with me as I offer his words for us today? Oh God, in a world often fraught with uncertainty and fear, we turn to you, the source of all courage and inspiration. Grant us, O oh Lord, the courage to stand firm in our convictions, even when the path is difficult. May we be guided by your truth and your love, knowing that you are with us. Fill us with the courage to reach out to those in need, to lend a helping hand, and to be a beacon of hope in a world that so often feels lost and in despair. Help us to be instruments of your peace and agents of your grace. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who showed us the ultimate example of courage on the cross, we pray. Amen.